My name is Abraham Nussbaum. I'm the Chief Education Officer at Denver Health in Colorado and an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and an Assistant Dean of Graduate Medical Education at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I wrote this essay about involuntary psychiatric treatment for people with serious mental illness, which should focus on returning to health rather than reducing danger. I was out with a group of physicians whom I did not know well. We became acquainted the way doctors will. We drank and told war stories. An emergency room physician performing a cryocothriotomy while experiencing labor pains of her own. A surgeon amputating a leg in an airborne Boeing AH-64 Apache. A psychiatrist caring for a woman hospitalized against her will because she tried to leave the husband she had and to spend the money she had not. Somehow, it was the shrink's bloodless war story that quieted the table talk. I was the psychiatrist who treated that woman against her will. The woman, let's call her Alice, had filed for divorce after decades of marriage, rented a suite in a luxury hotel, and ordered its expensive services for both her friends and the strangers she met while wandering naked through the hotel's halls. Wanting a holiday? She woke up in a hospital. Wanting a concierge? She was assigned me as her physician jailer. Alice was one of the many people I have held in psychiatric treatment against their will. Most never asked to enter the hospital in the first place. In the past month alone, they included a mother so despondent over our president's policies that she resolved to end her own life and the lives of her children. A young man found unconscious at a homeless shelter after ingesting all the medications one of my colleagues had prescribed. And Alice. As an undergraduate, I had read Michel Foucault's Madness and Civilization and believed psychiatrists were jailers for the people irrational enough to violate supposedly rational social mores. Before I began medical training, I swore I'd never become this sort of physician jailer. It seemed impossible to ethically treat a person with mental illness against their will. To avoid a profession founded on social control, I sought a specialty that was scientific and necessary. I'd be an oncologist because nothing was more scientific than fighting cancer. Or a trauma surgeon because nothing was more necessary than saving lives. The medical student rotations were different from the fantasies. And they thinned my interest in oncology and surgery, along with my vow that I would never become a shrink. Advancing to the required psychiatry rotation, I met my first patient who was experiencing full mania. He was a university student hospitalized with a cervical fracture after he flipped a kayak in a class four rapid. Trauma surgeons stabilized his injuries. They expected him to make a full recovery, but concluded he was too manic to recover on their service. They transferred him to psych. When he arrived, I talked to him in the medical way the surgeons and oncologists had taught me, asking direct questions to elicit symptoms. We were both students in our 20s, more alike than different, but my questions elicited no answers. Under the spell of mania, his brain flew between unrelated ideas, and his tongue voiced those ideas at a pace too rapid for me to decipher. I could only listen. I found myself imagining some narrative throughline between his manic thoughts and those he might experience on a normal day. I was confused by the work. 
I also knew it was necessary. He could be a young man who someday kayaked safely or a young man who someday paralyzed himself. My attending taught me that this work was scientific. The young man embodied the complex neurosciences underlying mania and its treatments, but it also required me to learn his story. When I realized that caring for him combined science, narrative, and service, I knew I would become, against my own will, a psychiatrist. Now, a decade into clinical practice, I am grateful to be a psychiatrist, but I still worry about the ways it becomes social control. In our society, people with unsolvable problems are housed in jails and hospitals. Now I'm housed there too. I practice in a safety net health system that cares for people with mental illnesses in our city's jails and in our hospital. The people I meet as patients alternate between seeing my colleagues while in jail and seeing me while in the hospital. I am an inpatient psychiatrist, which is like being an indoor dog, domesticated and confined, and I'm accustomed to the rhythms of caring for people with mental illness in the totalizing system of the hospital. I am housebroken, but at each day's end, I walk out the door. The people I meet as patients are unit broken. They are confined to a locked ward by a medical agent of society, by me, and they can walk out its doors only when I order it. In a way, we are held together against our wills. We participate in coercive psychiatric treatment while sharing an aversion to it. My hope is that we ultimately share an assessment of involuntary treatment as a tragic necessity. Yet I propose that we could share something more, a vision for a different type of mental health care for people like Alice. I realize, though, that this hope is complicated by the power and vulnerabilities we do not share. Mental illness affects a person's agency, their ability to make choices and act in the world in their customary ways and a psychiatrist treats them in an effort to restore that agency. Sometimes a patient's agency is so incapacitated by mental illness that we treat them against their will. We treated Alice against her will during the first week of her hospitalization, so she experienced me as a jailer, shorted hundreds of dollars of takeout to be delivered to the unit so everyone there could eat better fare than hospital food. We suspended her phone privileges. She propositioned male staff members as possible partners to replace her husband. We changed her care team to include mostly women. She accused us of limiting her freedom, telling her how she could spend her money and live her life. She was not wrong. A person with mental illness who becomes a psychiatric patient often has overlapping vulnerabilities, including sex, race and ethnicity, language, religion, sexual orientation, poverty, homelessness, other illnesses, disrupted education, and fragmented social networks. That, as the psychiatrist Laura Roberts wrote in A Clinical Guide to Psychiatric Ethics, expand and augment the power of psychiatrists, psychologists, physicians, and mental health clinicians in subtle, complex, and often culturally determined ways. The people I meet as patients are vulnerable to many authorities, which may either withhold vital services or deliver services coercely. The people I meet as patients are vulnerable to many authorities, which might either withhold vital services or deliver services coercively. Medicine is one of those authorities. 
The police walked Alice out of the hotel with her hands cuffed behind her back, delivered her to our hospital. But it was our emergency psychiatrist who placed her on a three-day hold, and it was I who extended it for up to 90 days. Physicians usually describe the decision to commit a patient as the resolution of the tension between the ethical principles of autonomy and non-maleficence. Psychiatrists are advised to respect a person's ability to make choices, their autonomy, and to neither unduly influence nor coerce a person they are treating. Non-maleficence, meanwhile, advises that a physician should act in ways that do not inflict evil or cause harm to others. Psychiatrists are obligated to predict whether harm to oneself or others will occur, to consider when to intervene to prevent harm, and to warn and protect those who may be harmed by the person's behavior. These obligations inevitably bring medical practice into conversation with the law. While medicine generally errs on the side of non-maleficence, the law generally errs on the side of autonomy. So as we talk about reforming our society's mental health care for people like Alice, we have to talk about commitment laws. Commitment laws vary between jurisdictions on a de jure basis and within jurisdictions on a de facto basis. Some jurisdictions, typically a state government, ask a clinician to consider how responsive a person's particular mental illness is to treatment, the availability of a treating facility, a person's acceptance of voluntary treatment, a person's ability to consent to treatment, and whether or not involuntary hospitalization is the least restrictive alternative. Commitments vary by length of time, by whether they are enforceable in community settings as well as within hospitals, and by whether they include the ability to administer medications and other treatments against a person's will. Commitment laws also differ based on national culture. Every culture gets the medicine it deserves, I believe. As the medical educator Catherine Montgomery wrote in How Doctors Think, medicine is a rational, science-using practice whose characteristic act is the exercise of clinical judgment. Each clinical judgment is simultaneously a moral and technical action. For instance, it is both a moral and technical action to determine whether a person's experience is a symptom of a mental illness or a variant of normal behavior. Judgment varies across cultures, so it follows that involuntary commitments differ across cultures. In his influential study of mental health law, the forensic psychiatrist Paul Applebaum observed that American psychiatric culture has developed dangerousness-based criteria for involuntary treatment and stringent procedural rights for protecting the liberty of people determined to need involuntary treatment. You commit a person like Alice if her behavior is unsafe, and you do so following the procedural orders of your jurisdiction. You release a person like Alice from treatment when she no longer meets stringent criteria. Applebaum observed that in European psychiatric culture, in some contrast, the broad goal of psychiatric commitment is to maximize a person's health while ensuring society's safety. In the European tradition, commitment depends upon the available services. You commit a person like Alice only if you can reasonably expect her to receive treatment that will maximize her health and her society's safety. You release a person like Alice from treatment when she has been restored to health and is safe to return to society. American voluntary treatment is less focused on a person's well-being. When initiating treatment, American psychiatrists like me are trained to ask, 
does this person have a mental illness? As a result of a mental illness, are they a danger to themselves or to others? Are they gravely disabled by a mental illness? We are trained to discontinue treatment when the patient no longer meets diagnostic criteria and is no longer dangerous, not when they have achieved health. When we discuss mental health reform in America more broadly, we generally talk about reducing danger as well. President Donald Trump, for instance, has pressed mental health reformers to address rising suicide rates and mass casualties by lowering the procedural requirements for commitment and increasing the number of psychiatric hospital beds. Instead of worrying principally about how to contain mental illness, we ought to talk about achieving mental health and enabling flourishing for people with mental illness. In The Collected Schizophrenias, the novelist Esme Weijun Wang wrote about being committed to a psychiatric ward three times. Of her time on locked wards, she wrote, I maintain, years later, that not one of my three involuntary hospitalizations helped me. I believe that being held in a psychiatric ward against my will remains among the most scarring of my traumas. When our commitment laws are focused on dangers and procedures, rather than on restoring a person to health, our mental health facilities dehumanize and traumatize. As Wang wrote, it is hard to convey the horror of being involuntarily committed. First, there's the terrifying experience of forcibly being put in a small place from which you're not allowed to leave. You're also not allowed to know how long you'll be there because no one knows how long you'll be there. The work traumatizes those of us who provide treatment as well. I sometimes feel so implicated by working on a psychiatric unit that I think about quitting and working in a less coercive environment. But less coercive environments often erect structural barriers, such as refusing to see people who are publicly insured or on an outpatient commitment to exclude persons with serious mental illnesses. So I practice where people with serious mental illnesses ultimately receive care, and I try to make it better. Psychiatry combines science about the most remarkable organ in creation, the brain, service to some of the most vulnerable people, those with mental illness, and narrative about some of the least narratable experiences, becoming estranged from yourself. When practiced rightly, psychiatry is relational rather than transactional. Because psychiatry is relational, psychiatrists experience the challenge of ethically using their influence a challenge that is inversely related to the vulnerability experienced by the people we meet as patients. Because psychiatry is relational, involuntary commitment laws should also be relational rather than procedural. When you meet a person as a patient who is held against their will, you are meeting a person made profoundly vulnerable by illness and social structures, including medicine. So a psychiatrist is profoundly challenged to be ethical in their care. This obligates our profession not only to provide evidence-based, person-centered care, but also to advocate for better care of people with mental illness. Today, they may receive what their society says they deserve. We need better societies, better medicine, and better commitment laws that restore health rather than reduce danger. We need more mental health courts, which divert persons with mental illness from correctional facilities to psychiatric facilities. We need more psychiatric facilities, yes, but they need to be focused on restoration to health instead of on the reduction of dangerousness. Psychiatric care models should include reimbursement for family therapy and outcomes-based vocational rehabilitation, 
activities that restore people with mental illness to familial and employment relationships. Psychiatric facilities should include fewer physicians who tell war stories and more peer specialists who can help patients tell their own stories. As we tried to understand Alice's current state within the narrative of her life, we asked, who knows you best? Then we called them. They all said that this was how Alice behaved when manic. They advised us to keep her hospitalized. We did, past the moment of true dangerousness, and past the moment when her insurer would guarantee payment. We kept her until she was healthy enough to return to her relationships. And on the day of discharge, she surprised me by affirming our relationship. I wanted to go, but I needed to stay, she said. The hospital is hard, but necessary. I had feelings I needed to follow, and you wouldn't let me. The hospital restricts action, so I can't follow those feelings. Thank you. During the second week of her hospitalization, she experienced me as a physician instead of a jailer. I was surprised and humbled by Alice's unexpected mercy. People with mental illness, people like Alice, have many vulnerabilities. They also have many strengths. Alice is bright, charming, and merciful. She deserved more from our relationship. If we focused our commitment laws on health over danger, psychiatric services could be more therapeutic than traumatizing. Then more people could, like Alice, be restored enough to health to tell their stories and offer their mercy.